Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Timothy 3.14 through 4.5. Uh, the mystery of godliness. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of lies whose conscience were served, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There's a lot that we can learn about being a Christian from someone like the Apostle Paul. There are really complex questions that someone like him is uniquely qualified to help answer. Really complicated situations that we as people can get ourselves into that he could give really good guidance for. And when he made it to Ephesus there in the first century, where his preaching protege Timothy was, he helped him handle all of that. But in the meantime, there were a few things that he could remind Timothy of. Things that if he could just hang on to those, the rest would work itself out. Because really, it is all about Jesus. He is the mystery of godliness that we confess. He was manifested in the flesh. That's something that means that God's Son came in human form. He was like any one of us, so he knows what we go through and struggle with. He also shows us what we should be. What it looks like when the human life is lived right. Because he was tempted like all of us are, yet he never sinned. He perfectly embodied what it means to be what we were all created to be. The image of God. Yet even though he was equal with God, he never used that for his own advantage, but instead he submitted, he emptied himself all the way to the point of giving his life. But it didn't end there because he was vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. Jesus died. He died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised by God's Holy Spirit as the angels gathered around his empty tomb and house. It's as though if the miracles that he performed during his ministry weren't enough, the way that he knew what people were thinking, the way that he had power over demons, the way that he had control over all of creation, the way that he could just reach out and raise dead people, if that weren't enough to prove that God's Holy Spirit was with him, his own resurrection decisively proved it. The fact that that tomb is empty tells us he is the Son of God. He's 
the one that God has anointed the Lord of all. And that truth was proclaimed among the nations. It was believed on in the world. Men and women, high and low, slave and free, eventually even Jew and Gentile, heard that message and chose to give their loyalty to Jesus as Lord. And they did so knowing that he had been taken up in glory. As his apostles, those witnesses of his life, of his death, and especially of his resurrection attested, Jesus' risen, glorious body was taken up into heaven to reign at God's right hand. A son of man, someone who knows what it's like for us, is in heaven ruling over all. He is sovereign. And from his sovereign throne, he has sent that same Holy Spirit to us to help. And one day, Jesus is coming back. That is our faith. And it's actually pretty simple. It would probably be good for us to commit to memory. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Because there's other stuff that Paul could teach. There's other stuff that, given the opportunity, Paul would teach. But if we just stay focused on Jesus, we will know how to behave as members of God's family. We will be pillars that hold up his truth. We'll be a buttress against this world's evil. It really is that simple. The thing is, we make it complicated. And God knew that we would do that. The Spirit warned about that expressly even. That some of us, even having heard and believed the gospel of Jesus, will choose to listen to deceitful spirits to receive demon teachings. We'll go along with things that flatly contradict Jesus and get to a point where we don't even feel guilty about it. We'll start making up our own rules and call that spiritual. It happened in the last days of first century Ephesus. It happens now. Because when Paul warns Timothy that there's going to be some to forbid marriage, can you think of any major religious groups that insist that clergy be celibate? Because that's what makes you more spiritual? Or any that say, don't eat certain foods on certain days of the week because that makes you more spiritual? It's right there. And we still mess it up. Because that's people. It's so plain. And we make some of the same mistakes now that they were making 2,000 years ago. But we don't have to. Jesus is so clearly revealed. The goodness of God is so apparent. We have the word of God and prayer so we can choose to live the way of things. We can experience true holiness if we set the right focus. Because training the church to do that is why Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. Which means it's also why God sent me here. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, continuing with verse 6, Paul wrote, if you put these things before the brothers 
You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe appreciate the context here the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy as an older preacher writing to a younger one a mentor writing to a protege a father writing to his son so he tells him, are you going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? Then you have to train. You have to train in the words of the faith. Yes, but also, crucially, you have to train in how those words are lived out. You see, the good doctrine that you have followed, that Paul refers to here, I find is not what we usually mean when we throw that word doctrine around where doctrine for us seems to mean those more abstract, analytical, or ritual-focused parts of our faith. We say doctrine, and we usually mean it as what we do in our assemblies and why we do it, and that is somehow different than real-life application. But that's not a distinction that the Apostle Paul would have recognized. The good, the sound doctrine, sound literally meaning healthy teaching of Jesus, really understanding who he is and what he is doing in this world, it affects all of life. It's not just having the right answer to theological questions. It's not just winning debates. It's living right. It's living like Jesus. And that doesn't always happen. Christians can get caught up with irreverent, silly myths, just like everyone else. We can judge. We can gossip. We can argue over things that do not matter. We stop speaking to people. We threaten to leave, we split, split up marriages, split up homes, split up churches, disrupt Christ's body, shake the faith of people that Jesus died to save over stupid, personal preferences. If Timothy is going to be a good servant, he had to train to personally be God. Because it's one thing to preach prayer, it is another thing to pray. It is one thing to teach a series of lessons on forgiveness, it is another thing to forgive. The church needs to see what that looks like on someone they know. Someone that they know isn't perfect. 
Someone they know still struggles. Someone they know who himself needs Jesus, but is at least trying. Is willing to go against the flow. On Sunday, yes, practicing those things when we disagree over which songs we want to sing or translations of the Bible we want to use or what kind of chair we want to sit on. But also on Monday, in their home with their families, or on Tuesday with their neighbors, or on Wednesday in the workplace, or on Thursday in the gym, on Friday with the kids' school, on Saturday out on the ball field. The church needs to see how much what Jesus taught, how the example he set, the mission that he gave matters. Not because work or school, our social lives or physical health are unimportant, but because godliness is more important. Did you hear that? Paul was inspired to say something important, so important, that when he wrote it, he called it out as saying, this is trustworthy. This is deserving of full acceptance. This is something that we should toil and strive for. He said, for while bodily training is of some Value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You caught that, right? Sometimes we think of spiritual life as the things we do so we can go to heaven. And then we have our real lives, which are the things that we want or the things that we need or the things that someone else expects of us. But we have limited time as we live life each day, so a lot of times we'll end up with conflicts where we've got to work late on Wednesdays or our kids have got travel games on Sundays. And then we start to ask, well, is it okay if I miss this for that? What do I have to do? But that completely misses the point. Anything that makes you more godly, that means anything that makes you more merciful and gracious. Anything that makes you slower to anger. Anything that helps you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness that makes you passionate for justice but always ready to forgive any prayer time any habit any church assembly or service project that makes you more like Jesus it absolutely has value in eternity and I am not at all denying you will not regret missing that work meeting when you were on your deathbed. Frankly, you probably won't even remember what that work meeting was about next month. I am not at all questioning the reality that your children 
have a 7% chance of playing ball in college and a 100% chance of standing before King Jesus in the judgment. That's important. But also appreciate that godliness is also important right now. It holds promise for the present life. You see, good doctrine isn't just about the church having the right leadership structure or using the right kind of music. It's about praising Jesus now. It's about living for Jesus now. It's about becoming like Jesus now. As a preacher, Timothy, and I, for that matter, have to keep that focus. Because if we're not focused on following Jesus, how can we possibly help lead anybody else to? How will you know the value of godliness if every time you come in here, I'm preaching sermons on all the errors the denominations are making? If every sermon you hear me preach is about the remarriages of hypothetical divorced people, how are you going to know the value of godliness as you live life each day? Now that means I might not speak out on every issue you would like to hear preached. Some of your favored hobby horses for beating might get a temporary reprieve, at least in this pulpit. And I may not be your favorite preacher. You may not like my style of speaking. You may really get annoyed by how I dress. You might not care for that translation of the Bible that I use or the duration of my sermons. But you don't have to. Because God doesn't call preachers to entertain. He calls preachers to train. You see, church isn't a spectator sport. You're not here to watch me or the song leader or the guy doing the Lord's Supper or leading the prayer or anyone else for that matter perform. This is a gym. This is a gym for building up the body of Christ and I am your trainer. Now you don't get stronger if I lift for you. I'll spot you. I will grab that bar when your muscles start to fail. And I've got to be honest, I'm not strong enough to just clear it off of you and throw it across the room, but I can work with you and help you get it to that place where we can safely set it down. I will teach you some things. I'll give you some exercises to do, but you can't show up to the gym once a week having done nothing in between and expect to shed that extra weight that you're carrying. You can't do that and expect to grow. We each have to toil and strive for that to happen. And you know, I honestly think it's safe to say that we all do. I don't think there's a soul in here that doesn't toil and strive. You work hard. You work full-time, you're raising kids, young kids, teenagers, 
You're caring for an aging parent. You're dealing with your own health issues. I know you work hard. I know you're busy. I know you struggle. But are we all experiencing the full value of godliness in every way? I don't think we are. I think some of us are hurting. Some of us are toiling, but it's for things that won't last. We're striving, but the things that aren't going to satisfy, even if we get them, they're not actually going to make things better. They're not even going to be things that we remember. We set our hopes on a relationship, or an acceptance letter, or a promotion, or we make all these plans for what we'll do once we're retired, or if we just get a little more money. And those things can all have some value, but they won't last forever. They aren't eternal. They can run out. They can be wiped out by a bad economy or poor health. For our lives to really be different, to truly be more abundant, to have true, abounding hope, we must set our hope on the living God. Do you realize what that means when we say he's the living God? He is not just the God for after we die. He's not just the God of a couple of hours on Sunday. He is not just a part of, even the most important part of, your life. Christ is your life. There is a God and he is alive. He's present in all that makes us who we are. All of your roles, all of your responsibilities. He is active. He's concerned. He's involved. Your life matters to him. So setting your hope on him means he's the reason you wake up. When you go to school, it's for him. Those relationships that you have, whether they're romantic or family or work relationships, you have them for Jesus. And when you set your hope on him, he will make them better. Jared Barden is a better chief administrative officer in his small business because he follows Jesus. Mark Barber is a better husband and father and grandfather because he follows Jesus. Julia Brockington is a more faithful, stronger daughter caring for her mother with dementia because she follows Jesus. Vicki Keller is a more gracious and compassionate and forgiving mother and grandmother because she follows Jesus. Gwen Lennon is a bolder, powerful, more loving grandmother and co-worker and neighbor because she follows Jesus. Look, I really believe that we are all toiling. I even think you all really believe in Jesus, that you want him to be your savior. Because none of us are that good of singers, I'm not that good of a speaker to justify you spending an hour and a half here or otherwise. But I know from my own life, just because we're here for that doesn't mean we have truly set our hope 
on God. Because I've been there. I've come to an awful lot of church assemblies. I've participated in an awful lot of activities and had my hope set somewhere else. But I also know from my own life that when we do set our hope on God, things change. I know that's why God has me here. I know that's why God had Timothy and Ephesus. To train so that that happens. But that does mean we've all got some work to do. Because as Paul continues, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy. The council of elders laid their hands on Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul wrote this to his preacher protege. We're literally reading 2,000-year-old male between a couple of dudes. But what Paul says here is more than just personal advice to Timothy. It's more than just professional mentoring or coaching. This is scripture. Paul had authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. That means what we read here was breathed out by God. That means that it will produce hope as we learn what was commanded and taught. If we learn it, that is. Because not everyone in Ephesus wanted to listen to Timothy. Even though he'd probably been working with Paul for 15 years at that point. 15 years of learning to follow Jesus. To sacrifice. To take risks. To genuinely care in a way no one else did. 15 years of going places for Paul when he couldn't get there. Of helping out with some really difficult situations. Now maybe to some in Ephesus he was still just a young guy. They saw him as that same kid who had been following Paul around when he first showed up in Ephesus. But Paul said, you don't listen to them, Timothy. You preach anyway. They don't get to think less of you because you're young. Be an example in what you say and in the way you live and in your love and your faith and your purity. And don't worry about the critics because there will always be plenty. Stay focused. On reading the scriptures to the church. On encouraging. On teaching. Use the gifts that God gave. That mentors and influences in your life help you develop. Of course, none of that put Timothy on the pedestal. He was no better or more important than anyone else in God's church. He still had to really practice. He had to throw himself into what he was doing in such a way that progress was obvious. 
He had to watch himself closely. He had to watch what he taught. He also had to watch how he lived. Because that's what it was all about. He didn't just preach a future hope. He was also training for a present one. Get that right. And you don't just save yourself. You save everyone who hears. You share God's joy. According to the Bible, this is the work of an evangelist. Sometimes, if hope is lacking among some of God's people, it's because the preacher ain't doing this. He's focused on something else. Though sometimes, we aren't looking for it from him. We're too busy recruiting entertainers instead of trainers. We don't want to be coached or spotted. We want someone to lift for us. And the critiques that we give, the contracts that we write, the performance reviews we undertake, the things that we get upset about and fuss over, they're things other than simple faith. In Jesus. We work hard. We're busy. We toil and strive. But so often we set our hope on something lower than the living God. Let's change that. Timothy wouldn't always be in Ephesus. I will not always be here. But while we're here, now, together, let's set our hopes high. Let's set our hopes all the way to the living God. Let's train for godliness, knowing that every effort we make will have value. It will have value now. It'll have value eternally. And if you haven't been saved, faith in Christ is actually quite simple. If you believe he's God's son, then join him. Join him in his death, burial, and resurrection by repenting of your sin being buried in baptism, and starting to live a new life where your hope is set fully on him because it really is all about Jesus. There's other stuff we can learn, other stuff that will be helpful, but if we focus on him and really train for his service, it'll make a difference now and forever.